As we continue in worship, I'll be reading our um, scripture passage for today, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by an, a destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. This is God's word to us. Thank you, Nancy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany as we continue in a series in Exodus. We're looking at Exodus chapter 16 this morning, which is the Old Testament reflection of uh, what Nancy just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So please join me. We'll pray together and then we'll look at the text. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much that we can gather within these walls to listen for your voice, and we're mindful, Father, that we live in a world of fear and violence and, and chaos in the moment, uh, that peace is in uh, tremendously short supply. We pray that you would equip us through the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit to be people who find in you the source whereby we're enabled to live as people of peace and hope and generosity in the midst of all that is yet before us. So we commit these moments to you. We invite you to be our teacher. We thank you for them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, 1990, my wife and I moved to Rockport, Washington, which is 60 miles east of Mount Vernon. We had started a nonprofit uh, with a vision of integrating Bible teaching and outdoor activity and offering a retreat center. The property we purchased was in need of a great deal of repair. There were five different uh, cabins uh, on the property. And so we immediately became very, very busy people. We also moved there with three children and no visible means of support. And so this created a bit of a challenge. And uh, the word of the day for us for about three years became the word yes. In other words, uh, will you write a grant for Skagit County? Yes. Will you receive vacation rental uh, guests? Yes. Retreat guests? Yes. Speak at churches? Yes. Start a church in your living room? Yes. Officiate basketball games in Mount Vernon? 500 games one winter? Yes. Yes. Bring it on. Tons of energy, right? But here's what happened, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, every week... As I began a new week, I would feel a little bit less full. Does this make sense to any of you in the room? Like you're, you're, you're doing too much and you're, and you're draining yourself. So then I showed up at a uh, conference in England where I was scheduled to speak. I got sick on the way over there, exhausted. 
And the speaker read John 10.10 as a bit of a theme verse at the beginning. And he said, this is the word of Christ. I've come that you might have life, you might have it abundantly. And then he defined the word abundance. And this is what he said. He said, here's abundant life. It's life with capacity. It means you have the capacity to be generous, hospitable, loving, joyful. You have capacity. And then he's, he's talking to a group of people involved in ministry. And this, this is the next thing he says. He says, some of you in the room don't have any capacity anymore. You're tired. You're afraid of failing, so you're working too hard. You're afraid that God's not going to provide for you, so you're working too much. You're afraid of the future. You're overworked. You're not sleeping well. You're stressed out. You're unhappy. Sound familiar? I would, I would, I mean, I knew he was talking to me. And I'd suggest that if capacity is criteria for good living, and Jesus seems to indicate it is, our world isn't working very well. <laughs> Physical stress, body image, sleep challenges, long hours, financial fears, loneliness, Christians aren't immune from any of these things. And the truth we see in this text, in Exodus 16, is that our lack of capacity often stems from a wrong view of God. In other words, is God to be trusted as our provider or not? And the lessons God teaches Israel in the wilderness are there for our benefit. As Nancy read, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things are written for our instruction. In other words, maybe we can learn from some of the mistakes that they made, and maybe we can learn something about God's character by revisiting the story of Israel in the wilderness when they're hungry. And that's the story we pick up in Exodus chapter 16 today. And so I want to give you a bit of a context for that story before we get into some of the details. Israel is just getting to know God. They've come out of slavery, but in slavery in Egypt, and before that, as a scattered people, they didn't know this God, Jehovah, they didn't know this God's character. They didn't know that it was one God over all gods. They didn't know that this God uh, wasn't angry, petty, narcissistic, jealous. They didn't know. They didn't know this God. And so now they're getting to know God in this new nascent adventure as they're wandering through the wilderness. God had been silent for 400 years and then had delivered them out of slavery miraculously, as we've seen last week in the account of the Red Sea. Getting to know the character of God then becomes a primary goal during this time in the wilderness between slavery and the promised land where God will direct them. In the meantime, they will learn something of the character of God in the wilderness. And the wilderness is this place in life where we're out of our comfort zone and where we're out of control. Does that make sense as wilderness? I mean, if any of you have been backpacking in the room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you're out backpacking, you're out of your comfort zone, you should be out of your comfort zone. And uh, you're out of control. You hang food in the trees because you're afraid that if you don't, a bear will rip your tent open, eat your food, and eat you. So you hang your food in the tree. You're, but you don't know if there's a bear nearby. You don't know. You're, it's, you're like every step... Is, is, uh, there's a care with every step. This is the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there's things that you can learn about the character of God. Psalm 107 tells some wilderness tales, one of which is a ship encountering a mighty storm. It says the waves toss the ship way up and they came crashing down and waves are coming over the bow. And everyone on the ship is afraid they're going to die. They call out to God, deliver us. And then God delivers. And now they know God as a deliverer in a way they would never have known without the storm. Does this make any sense to any of you in the room? They know now, listen, by experience, not by lecture. In other words, you can learn things in here, but what I tell students in Torchbearers when I go to teach at these various schools is I say, you know, when we come to Bible study here, you fill a notebook with notes. Don't think that that constitutes maturity. It doesn't. 
No, no, what we're doing in here right now, even this moment this morning, what we're doing is I'm trying to hand you a map so that you can understand the journey that you must take. And part of the journey will take you into the wilderness. Out of your comfort zone, out of control, you'll go there. And what, you, what happens there is you come to discover different facets of God's character by experience that now make the map come to life for you, if that makes sense. So, you know, until it's dark, I don't know God as light. Until I'm lonely, I don't know God as companion. Until I'm sick, I don't know God as healer. Until I'm broke, I don't know God as provider. Until I'm enslaved, I don't know God as the liberator. I don't know these things by experience. I know them. I know them here, but I'm told to love God not only with my head, my mind, but I'm told to love God with my heart, and my heart only resonates with experience, not preaching. And so it's not enough for us to say, yeah, I came, I heard, I'm changed. Oh, no. Until there's wilderness encounters, it's the wilderness that enables us to come to know God in a real way. And so you see, the essence of the gospel then is not that God circumvents the wilderness. In fact, when you read Exodus, God intentionally takes us right into the wilderness. Why? We can only learn there the character of God. So you might be in the wilderness this morning, the wilderness of loneliness, financial insecurity, health challenges, broken relationship, uncertainty. If you're in the wilderness, listen, which is really all of us in different contexts. But what we learn in this text is that though God takes us into the wilderness in order to teach us about God's character, often we refuse to learn. And Israel failed to learn the lessons they were intended to learn in the wilderness. So we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from their failure to learn. Uh, so we show you then this morning three kind of vital wilderness realities. The nature of grumbling because Israel grumbled. We'll talk about that. The nature of manna, the bread that God provided, and the nature of temptation. We'll look at those three things together. We begin with the nature of grumbling. So again, I'll set the context. Israel has, has seen God now provide for them in pretty miraculous ways. They were enslaved for 400 years. Now God has been their deliverer, right? And through a Passover meal, God brought them out of slavery. Now they're wandering. And then God parts the Red Sea. So again, God is their deliverer. And then they, on the other side, when they're thirsty, God provides water for them. When they need guidance, God is providing guidance because God is a cloud in the day. And you follow the cloud, you're following God. You follow the fire at night, you're following God. So God is providing guidance, material provision. They went out with silver and gold. Uh, and, 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 and deliverance. Deliverance from slavery, deliverance through the Red Sea as the Egyptian army comes, and God brought water out of a rock and then led them miraculously to this place in the desert where there are 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they get a chill there, this place called Elam for a little while, and then the cloud moves and they have to move on, and so now they're moving forward when we come to the text, Exodus chapter 16, and so pick up with me as I read here, they're setting out from Elam where they've been enjoying this beautiful water and these palms, kind of this desert oasis. And then they end up in the wilderness of sin, which is just geography. It's not a theological commentary. They're in the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai. Uh, and the whole congregation of Israel, verse 2, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And this is what they said. Oh, I wish we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt because there we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. You, Moses, have brought us out of the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Boom. So, you know, provision, 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 provision. Exodus 15, party, celebration, right? Then is oasis. Now, hunger. First response. Moses brought us out of to kill us. 
We wish we'd never come. We, we hate you. We want to go back. And, this, and now grumbling. The word grumbling, it, it appears here in this chapter only five times. But let me, I'm going to warn you. If you read Exodus and Numbers, grumbling is one of the most repetitive words in those two books of the Bible, grumbling. So by the time you get to Numbers 12, it's, it says in Numbers 12, now the people grumbled. And Moses then goes to God and says, um, and this is my paraphrase, but you read it's hysterical. Moses goes to God and says, if I have to lead these people one more day, <coughs> kill me now. I've had it. I am sick of my calling, right? Because for the people, they're constantly grumbling. So, Pretty important that you and I look at the nature of grumbling this morning because we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, don't grumble, right? So what, do we, you know, what does it mean? To, like, what is grumbling? Well, here's grumbling. You can see it in, in Israel here. They're looking at their present circumstance and this is all they want. I don't want to learn anything in this circumstance. I just want the circumstance to what? Go away. Just want it to go away. And just to make an observation here, before you're too hard on them, they're hungry, right? And when you're hungry, something, you begin to think about something a lot. What do you start thinking about when you're hungry? You start thinking about what? I want food, right? I mean, if you've ever really been hungry, when you're hungry, you want, I mean, you want, you want to eat. And so, and there, and there is no food. So now, you're thinking about food, but there is no food, and the fact that there is no food makes you think about food, what? Even more. And then you, th- then you start assuming, uh, oh, you know what? Moses brought us out here not to provide for us. He brought us out here to kill us. And you, you know, wag your finger, and, then you're, and now you're grumbling. Now, um, we have a word in our culture for people who are hungry and upset by being hungry. It's a new word. Hangry. Have you heard of this before? It's hungry and angry contracted to make one word. I didn't know this word until recently when one of my kids said to me, oh, Richard, I think you're hangry, right? <laughs> Saying, oh, you're hungry. And so all you want, that's all you want when you're hungry is you just want to meet the need. So there's a hunger here. And when the hunger is not met, like when I'm hungry, what do I want? I want the hunger met. When the hunger is not met, what do I want? Even more, I want the hunger met. What, few of us in the room are like this. Oh, I'm hungry. I wonder what God wants me to learn <laughs> here in this beautiful season of hunger. Oh, Lord, thank you for this empty plate and all that you will teach me through this season of hunger. No, I mean, we don't do that. Instead, we're like this. Must have food. Boom. Now, you know, I want, I'm going to eat. So, we, like, grumbling means this, I just want my circumstances to change, and I begin to blame someone for my circumstances. And Moses' response says, hey, you think you're blaming me, you're not blaming me, you're actually mad at who? At God, who actually brought you out here in the wilderness, so don't complain against me. You're going to complain, complain against God. But you're, the grumbling is this, all the way, if you dig down deeper and deeper, when a situation is not to our liking and all we want is the situation to change, we become bitter about the situation. We're grumbling and rooted at the bottom of it. When you dig down into the hole, the, the kind of the bedrock is this. I doubt the goodness of God. That's why I grumble. 
And so is the life that God has given me acceptable? Is the job God has given me? The spouse, the body, the money, the, the, the education, the, the grade point average, the connections. Is this life enough? And when we say no, we're mad at God. And, that's, and then we're, that's grumbling. And so you, now you keep digging in this hole. Oh, is God enough? Well, understand here, in our human nature, we're flawed and we're, in, we're inherently predisposed to doubt the goodness of God. Did you know that? I mean, it's in the Bible. It's in, it's, it's, it's in Genesis chapter 3 where, we're, where we discover the nature of Adam and all of us in the room, if you've read Aslan, you know this, we're all sons and daughters of Adam, right? So you know that we're all children of Adam. We, care, we inherit Adam's nature. So remember Adam and Eve, um, in their nature, even before she partakes of this fruit, even before, remember, uh, has God really said don't eat of any fruit? And immediately... Eve is tempted to doubt what? The goodness of God. Oh, look, God's given you everything. And of course, except that one tree. And what do we focus it? it's, it's in her nature. What does she focus on immediately? The one tree, forbidden. Why? Because it's in her to, somehow it's in her to doubt that everything else is enough. God is withholding from me. There, ergo, God isn't good. Ergo, God isn't to be trusted. Hello, that's grumbling. Right there in the garden. And immediately, Adam doesn't believe God is good either because when they partake of the fruit and Adam hears the sound of God's voice, what does Adam say? I was afraid and I ran and hid. Do I believe that God is saying, Adam, where art thou? Because he wants to come and embrace me and provide a plan of of reconciliation and provision for redemption? No, I think God's going to kill me. And so I run away. I assume the worst. It's in my nature and hence grumbling, right? Right? And so I think all of us in the room, we need to deal with a very fundamental question because it's profound and, and challenging in our own culture. Is God good? Is God good? Is God, particularly, is God good enough to be trusted? When I look at the scope of the world and I see what's happening, is God good? Is God good when teenagers are mowed down in Munich? Is God good when a, when a, 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 a man is shot with his hands up? In Florida, is God good? How is this stuff happening? Is God good when children are dying who are on boats heading uh, for freedom because there's a dictator? Where is God? Is God good? And understand here that the the pathway to coming to see that God is good is not some kind of a Pollyanna denial of the reality of suffering in the world. Oh no, if I'm to avoid grumbling, what I need to do instead of grumble is lament. Because lament means this, God... What are you doing? Why is this happening? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. And as I pour out my heart to God, this, I don't get answers. Other than this, I know that in this broken world, God has an eternal perspective that I don't have. And the people who die young, God knows. God cares. God doesn't delight in the death of anyone. God weeps with me. I can lament but lament is different than grumbling because here's grumbling. Oh yeah, right, sure. Trust you, look what happens. And I'm bitter. And when I'm bitter, I, can't, I don't trust anymore. And, and, and I'm angry. And, I, and then I, eventually I walk away. I disengage. So the fundamental question, is God good? I mean, it's in our nature to say, no, <laughs> life's too hard. 
So you got to take care of yourself. And then we're on bad ground. Psalm 73 is where Asaph asked the question, is God good? Is God good? Because I'll be honest, here's Asaph, I'm following God, but some of my pagan friends seem happier than me. You ever felt that way? <laughs> People outside of Christ, they go to the dentist, they come back, oh, perfect teeth. You've got a quiet time, you tithe, you're serving on two boards, you go to the dentist, and the, and the dentist says, yeah, you know, you're going to need a bridge and a root canal and four new teeth, congratulations. And you go, yeah, I mean, come on. How come following God? I thought obedience meant comfort. You know, lie. No, no, you love God? He's, we're in the wilderness. At sea, there are seasons. Why? So we can learn that God is good. So God takes us to the wilderness. We know hunger, then we know provision. We know darkness, then we know light. We know questions, then we know God is enough. We know lament, then we know comfort. We know. So we, so we need here to learn that in our hunger, hunger for companionship, hunger for intimacy, hunger for meaning, hunger for provision, hunger for direction, in our hunger, God, God meets us. And we learn new things about the character of God. So not thank you, God, that I'm hungry, but thank you, God, for what you can teach me here because I know that you'll teach me something. That's how we avoid grumbling. And we need to look here at the nature of the manna as well. It's very important. Uh, in uh, verses four through seven, they're hungry, and so they, they complain. And then God kind of has a plan, and he says in verse 4, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people go out, gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they'll walk in my instruction. The sixth day, twice as much bread. And then Moses and Aaron come out, and they say, at evening you'll know the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 16, the plan kind of unfolds a little bit more. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather this stuff, this manna, every morning, Gather it, as much as you should eat, an omar apiece, which is a day's portion each, according to the number of people in your household. So some gathered more, larger households. So the sons of Israel do. Some gathered much, some little. When they measured it, he who had gathered much had no excess. He who had gathered little had no lack. Everyone had enough. Everyone had enough. It's a beautiful, beautiful plan. And then God says, uh, look, every day, only gather enough for that day. And then God says, and on day Six, gather twice as much uh, so you don't have to gather it all on day seven. So now let's unpack this a little bit and understand manna here. First of all, understand the nature of what the manna represents because it's really actually quite instructive for our own lives. First thing to see, manna, they're going to be in the wilderness for at least two years. It ends up being 40, but manna is for them strength for the journey, right? Like if you don't, if you don't have the manna, you won't make it. So, so between where you are now in your own life, between where you are and where God wants you to be, there's a journey. It's true for all of us in the room. Paul says at the end of his life, I haven't arrived yet. I'm on a journey. And so for me to have the strength of the journey to which I'm invited by Christ, I need this manna. And it has a New Testament application. We'll see in a moment. So it's, it's strength. Also, here's interesting. Uh, the manna is not available through human means. You can't buy it. You know, Whole Foods, I'd like some manna. No, the only way is God is going to provide the manna for you. Third thing you see about the manna 
the mayor requires human participation. In other words, uh, d will you make it without what God provides? No, you won't. You'll die. <laughs> However, uh, is there a role for you to play in that provision? Yes, you have to get up every morning, and you have to get up in the morning because the manna evaporates by noon. So you night owls, like, watch out here. You've got to get up, and you've got to gather your manna. Otherwise, it's gone. And if it's gone, you're hungry. So you have a role to play, even though you can't make the manna, you can't buy the manna, you have to collect the manna. You can't lay in your bed. God doesn't say, hey, just lay down, and the manna will be in your tent. No, you have to get up and go get your manna. So you have the human role. And then, and then God is going to teach things about God's character through the provision of manna in a couple of ways. First, the good news, hey, you don't need to store anything up. You don't need to store up. And, the, and God's going to provide for you every day. It's going to be provision. So don't, don't ever gather more than you need. And then on day seven, excuse me, on day six, you don't need to gather at all because on day seven, you, don't, you can rest. Stay in your tent and eat the manna you gathered yesterday. I'm giving you who were slaves this gift of rest. So that one day a week, you don't have to do anything regarding provision because God has provided for you. So, manna, right? Strength, not available by human means, requires human participation, teaches God's character. There's a lot of practical application here, but when we come to the New Testament, we see here that uh, God is trying to teach us things about the nature of Christ and rest for us through the provision of manna. So first thing, I want to talk about rest just for a minute. For Israel, the gift of rest is ultimately tied to their trust in the character of God as provider. In other words, if I believe that God will provide for me, then at some point I can rest and, and say, okay, do you know what? It's going to be enough. And this was my problem when we began our retreat center. Like, God had provided miraculously for us to enable us to buy a property and, and do what we were doing. God had provided every step of the way, and yet it's in me anyway to say, thanks God for everything you've done so far, I'll take it from here because I really don't know if you're going to be able to provide now. And so then the work days become long and the Sabbath disappears, and pretty soon because we don't trust in God, we're working, working, working for more and more and more, and then here's what happens. We feel like there's never enough. Not enough time, not enough money, not enough security for the future, not enough energy, not enough sleep, not enough intimacy. Why? Jesus says that when we're burnt out this way, it's because we don't trust that God will provide enough for us, so we worry we take matters into our own hands, and the result of this is that we become incredibly materialistic, and this is really the culture in which we find ourselves. We live in a highly materialistic, materialistic culture with, with more work hours, less vacation, less sleep, more stuff, less happiness, more activities, less meaning, you know, more friends, less connection, and the fruit of our failure here to say enough ever is this sense of weariness, right? And, and it's all rooted in a lack of trusting God, that God is going to provide for me everything we need. And so at some point we can say enough and, and quit. So the gift of rest, it's a very important gift. And then the other thing you see here is our ability to trust God in this way in, for us, is tied to our capacity to know Christ as true bread. In other words, the Old Testament manna, we're told by Christ himself, is a picture of Christ as bread. So Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 48 to 51, look, you need to eat of me, I'm the true bread. 
And, and in John chapter 6, Jesus, having just fed 5,000 miraculously with a couple of loaves, Jesus says, uh, look, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. But if you eat of me, you'll never die. And here's a, this, I'm just going to build a link here between this very, very powerful promise, you will never die, and, and the, the, the capacity for rest. Because we live in a world that says to us, well, you have to do as many things as possible to fill your life with meaning. And there, uh, there's a phrase now called FOMO. Do you guys understand this phrase? It's new to me, but it's not new, apparently. And it's, it's an acronym, and it stands for, does anyone know? Fear of missing out. So you know, fear of missing out. And so if, if he went to Scotland, I want to go to Scotland. And if he, you know, ran with the bulls, I want to run with the bulls. And if he makes his own cappuccinos every morning, I want to make my own. And if he grows his own food, I want to grow my own. And, oh, and if she has chickens in her backyard, oh, I want to have chickens in my backyard. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we, we've got this blank sheet of paper that is our life, and somewhere in there, God has a calling for us. But the, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And we're like, thanks for that. I've got my own ideas of life. You know, run with the bulls, grow organic, make my own kombucha, you know, <laughs> make my own paper bags to shop. I mean, and pretty soon, I'm just, I'm just so, I'm tired. And at some point, I've learned to say, enough. And so Jesus is saying here, look, you're going to live forever. You're going to live forever. So why are you trying to cram in one, on a one sheet of paper an eternity of experience? You don't need to run with the bulls and drink scotch in Scotland and golf St. Andrews and grow organic, and raise chickens. You don't need to. You can do what you're called to do, and watch this, let everything else go. And then you can be like this, someday, eight million years from now, I'll golf. For me, right now, not a priority at all. No problem. So, Jesus says, you're gonna live forever, if you partake of my bread. And that will now enable you to live as a person of rest. And so what, what I need then is to learn how to partake of Christ because Christ becomes for me enough. And this, I, I, this becomes a hugely significant piece of the entire story. Fellowship with Christ becomes like my source of strength and satisfaction and trust. When I feast on Christ, there is a sense in which I end up believing, actually, that Christ is enough. But when Jesus preaches this in John chapter 6, uh, he says, if you don't eat of me, you have no part in me, you have no life. And it says, as a result of this sermon, John chapter 6, many people who were listening, most people left. Jesus turns to his disciples, he says, do you want to leave too? Now, why did everyone leave? Here's why, because Jesus says that, look, satisfaction comes from partaking of me, enjoying fellowship with Christ. That's your source of satisfaction. If at bedrock that is not your source of satisfaction, you're missing it. And we're like this, no, no. <laughs> That's not satisfaction. Satisfaction is upward mobility and good grades and good sex and good health and a long list of other things. And Jesus says, those are not foundational. The foundation is me. You marry, one of you will die first. You have a house, you'll lose it. Naked you came, naked you leave. Why are you amassing all this stuff and experience thinking that they're in his life? Because if that is your paradigm, Satisfaction will always be one experience around the corner. 
and to be waiting and waiting and waiting to enjoy life when Jesus says, I've invited you to abundance now. <laughs> and and the, at the bedrock of that abundance is resting in me. So everyone leaves. No, we don't want Jesus' satisfaction. We've got an empty page here. And you're telling us just put Jesus in the middle and call it a day? No. I'm going to build my life, man. Everyone leaves. Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, you guys want to leave too? John 6, 6, 6. And I love Peter's answer. Peter, Peter could have given kind of a Sunday school answer, an interview answer. You want to leave? And here's Peter. Oh, no, Jesus, we never leave, man. You're amazing, awesome. We think you're... He doesn't do that. You want to leave? Here's Peter's answer. I love his answer. Where else are we going to go? Is Jesus always... And, the bread that is Christ, is it always easy? No. Saying no to lust for food, lust for power, lust for sex, lust for prestige, lust for stuff, lust for experience. No, not easy. But here's Peter. Where else are we going to go? Because you alone, this, you alone have the words of life. So... so I want Christ to be my source. And what, what ends up happening, interestingly, is to the extent that Christ is enough, everything's a gift. And some of you have experienced this, and I wish all of you could experience this, where your life is utterly uh, seen as, as, as mercy. Our, our own experience, my wife and I, living in Friday Harbor, was that we... Uh, we lived in a little trailer on the church property and didn't make much money at all. Enough, not enough. It was low enough of a thing that we could get free milk from the government and free butter and this kind of thing. And, I went, and we had our kids, our kids were born there and we had to fly off for the kids to be born. And, and I would just say to you, uh, not materially enough by any human standard and also... Uh, Every, just perfectly content, everything a gift, right? So that my buddy has a boat, and I don't even like boats, but he takes me out uh, salmon fishing, and, you know, we're trolling, and I, I get a salmon, and I'm reeling it in, and as soon as the salmon breaks the water, you know, a bald eagle <laughs> swoops down out of the sky and steals this salmon off the line and then just takes it right over my head, always mocking me. Ha-ha! <laughs> I've got, you know, and he's, and he's gone. And I just, I'll just say to you, are you kidding me? Like, I feel like a millionaire. I feel like a millionaire. Watching whales while I'm eating my tuna sandwich and studying Isaiah. How, like, what are you, what, how much is enough? I'll tell you what's enough. Christ is enough. And, and when Christ is enough, everything's a gift. Red mill's a gift. Not a birthright, it's a gift. The mariner's winning, a gift. <laughs> Sunshine, a gift, not a birthright. Wouldn't you love to live with that kind of gratitude? If Christ is all you have, then everything he gives you is, makes it everyday Christmas. So eat on, feast on Christ. Enjoy fellowship with Christ. He becomes enough and everything a bonus. And now you're rich. And then finally, here's the nature of the temptation. 
God's vision is this sustainable joy and gratitude. And he wants to teach them to rest in his character's provider. So in verse 19 and 20, he says, don't, you know, every day gather your Omar and no more. So what, is, what happens? He says, don't gather any more. And they go and they gather two Omars. And then they wake up the next morning and the second Omar that they didn't eat on the first day is, has turned to worms. And Moses is super frustrated with them. And he said, God told you every day one Omar. So what's up with two Omars? And their, and, and their answer, essentially, by reading between the lines, is this. We still don't trust God. I mean, I know there was the Red Sea and, and you know, the, the Passover and the plagues and God speaking and your stick in the sky and the parting and the army and the water and the dates and the 12 springs and the, and the rock and the water coming out of a rock, sweet, but hello, this is today. What have you done for me lately? How quickly we forget, right? And then in, on day seven, God says, now, don't go out and gather. And so, of course, what happens? A subset. Oh, it's day seven. What's God holding out on us for? We're going to go gather. And they go out. And Moses is again like this. What are you guys doing? Why are you going out and gathering? Why? Because it's up to us. I mean, come on. It's, yeah, this is the, I mean, we, we have seven days in a week to, you know, to get rich and to amass our IRAs and to fill out our resume of running with the bulls and all that fun stuff. We got seven days. And then we say we're too busy. God wants Israel to learn two important lessons through this manna thing. First, he wants to teach us, look, enough is enough. First Timothy 6, 8, what's enough? First Timothy 6, 8 says, if you have food and shelter, you have enough. You have enough because, because you have the capacity now with food and shelter to, to enjoy the life that God has given you. That's it. And of course, I understand we wrestle with contextualizing that in a world of retirement insurance and all that stuff, but the principle at stake is this. My fear of missing out on experiences and my fear of missing out on stuff and my fear of the future will create in me the, 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 capac- the, the, the incapacity to relax and enjoy life. Like I'll just keep working to get more and more and more and more. And the fruit of that, stress, sleep, issues, loneliness, fear, anxiety. Sound familiar? When you think you need to carry more, maybe you should carry less. When John the Baptist called people to repentance, they said, what should we do? This is what he said. If you have two coats, give one away. This guy, Josh Becker, he um, wrote a book entitled More uh, is the more of having less, the more of having less. And he has embraced kind of a minimalist lifestyle because he said he went to clean his garage out one day and he's amassed all this stuff. And so he's sorting, put it out, bring it in, send it away. It's busy and it's hot. And his son wants to play ball. He says, I don't have time to play ball. I gotta do this garage thing. I got so much stuff. I had to sort stuff today. 
And then his neighbor comes and says, hey, how's it going? Oh, you know, garage stuff, right? And his, and his neighbor goes, the more stuff you own, the more stuff owns you. It's a good word. I mean, how much is enough? I think we all need to wrestle with it. So that's a lesson for Israel. Hey, travel light. Because when you do, everything that you receive is a gift. God's going to take care of you, so relax, be grateful, celebrate, be generous. And then, kind of corollary, God wants us to learn how to rest. You were slaves. That means not, no free time, no, no resources, and now I'm going to teach you how to live as free people. And, and so if I'm going to summarize this, I'm going to summarize it with, with you know, a few words here. Trust God, receive, remember, and then you'll rest. Trust God, receive, remember, and then you'll rest. You will. <laughs> when, uh, when that guy was speaking in England at the end of the first night, he was speaking on, on manna, actually, and he, he said, uh, hey, name your hunger. What are you hungry for right now? And I knew the answer for me. I was hungry for rest. And then he said, remember God's provision. And so we just took a moment and thought back over the last seven years of our life in Friday Harbor and God providing for us every step of the way and moving into the mountains and not having money and trees blowing down and God providing, 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 providing. God's provision, amazing, 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 amazing. And then suddenly, it's just almost, almost uh, physical, the peace of God is here present. Do you see? Like, now, oh yes, God has provided, God will provide I don't need to referee 500 basketball games a year. And so uh, we came back from England. I still had lessons to learn. But the, f the first thing I did immediately is I quit refereeing basketball and driving 60 miles down the road. And uh, I'll tell you what, I don't miss it still. <laughs> right? <sighs> Officiating city league basketball with burnt out athletes is no fun. I know your car. I'll be waiting after the game. <laughs> so suddenly, time. Suddenly time. Suddenly we slept out on the deck now and saw the stars with our kids. Why? There's a lesson. That's shaking. Hey, will you relax? You're in my hands. Trust. Receive. Remember. Rest. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, close now, we look to you to be our provider. And as we respond, I just pray that you'd give us hearts to hear what your spirit is saying to us. I'm just going to ask everyone with your eyes still closed, would you just stand up for just a moment and just hold your hands out like this. Just hold your hands in front of you, palms up. And I'm going to ask you just for a moment, would you do this? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you so that you can name in prayer to the Lord Jesus your hunger? Jesus, I'm hungry this morning. <laughs> I'm hungry for sexual purity. I'm hungry for rest. I'm hungry for material provision. I'm hungry for intimacy. I'm hungry for companionship. I'm hungry for direction. I'm hungry for peace in our world. I'm hungry. And then just take a moment as well and remember God's provision in your past. Thank you, God, that you've provided for me. 
Thank you, God, for days in the past when you provided materially, for days when someone gave me the right word that I needed to hear. Thank you, God, for peace when I needed peace. Thank you, God, for companionship when I was lonely. Thank you, God, for light when it was dark. Thank you. Teach me, Jesus, to be a person of rest in our world. Thank you. Let's worship together.